0: hi
1: welcome to truly fabulously monstrous
0: a podcast about true crime and
1: cryptids i am your co-host hattie james
0: i am your other co-host kevin hi kevin hi hattie
1: so first off in case there's any auditory difficulties like in our first episode we should probably explain to our dear listeners who are sticking it out with us um that we are in two different states doing this remotely and our poor people who cannot have all the fancy remote communication technology needed to do this properly yes we are working on it it is a process thank you for bearing with us we're hoping within the next few episodes to get it down
0: we're working on it.
1: We're working on it. Um, about the podcast. Um, as Kevin said, this is a podcast about true crime and cryptids. Yep. Every Tuesday we will post a episode. I the word for a second. I am tired. We will post an episode with one of us talking about a cryptid and that Thursday, the one who did the listening, not the talking, we'll do an episode about a true crime and then we'll switch off the next week. Um, uh, Would
0: you like to explain, Kevin, what a cryptid is? I sure would. A cryptid is a creature of possibly mythical origin whose existence cannot be proven or disproven by scientific means. So Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the mermaids, leprechauns, unicorns, things like that.
1: Centaurs.
0: Yes. Fire um, phoenixes. Thunderbirds. Puck wedgies. Yeah, I was gonna say, let's just... <laughs> welcome to the We List Cryptid slowly hour.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, and true crime, most people know what that means, um, but in case you don't, which is perfectly fine, everyone learns things eventually, uh, true crime is the art of, or act of telling a story that is based on, the fa- based on or 100% the facts of a crime that has actually taken place in history.
0: And there's a lot of them.
1: Yes, and this will be a middle of the road podcast. We will try to keep it PG-13 and take our personal biases and opinions, uh, yeet them out the window, as the young kids would say <laughs> these days. Um, and try to get straight down to the attacks, which gets interesting when we talk about cryptids. Yes. Or the conspiracy theories around crimes. Yes. Which, which reminds me, you did the cryptid, uh, this week, so my turn for the true crime. And my crime has so many conspiracy theories that I have decided that the best way to handle it is to not talk about any of them. <laughs> The crime itself is a mess, and it is such a mess. And then you put the conspiracy theories in it, and I'm not about that. That, That's not how our the
0: conspiracy theories could be like their own separate episode. Oh yeah. Oh, speaking of um listeners, uh, we said, uh, when we tweeted about our pilot episode, uh, we we said we'd give a shout out to anyone who could guess. What Cryptid, I was covering, if they could guess uh, based on the pictures we posted. And I posted
1: the same thing on Instagram, and no one responded. I had one
0: response on Twitter, and they didn't get it exactly, but they were pretty darn close. Um, Hang on, I need to log into Twitter. Crime and Music. They came the closest. They guessed... The Vampire of Mocha, which wasn't quite accurate, but I did talk about The Vampire of Mocha when I talked about El Chupacabra. Yeah, so, shout out to Crime and Music. You came the closest. And thank you, yes, thank you for responding to our tweet. I got very excited when the notification popped up on my phone. Like, unreasonably excited. I was at work. I, it, was, it was a whole thing. <laughs> okay.
1: So, um... I think I should just roll into this absolute train wreck that I picked. Okay, so this is the thing. We, I tried, we tried in the middle of our technical difficulties to record an episode, and it was something that I really want to do, that we, I, we might do in the future, so I'm not going to talk about, that we spent, I went down a rabbit hole of depressing, bummer,
0: it, I, was, like, a, me, it was a dark time. <laughs>
1: We dove straight into Bummersville. It
0: was it was uh, it was a bad time. It was just let's just it was a bad time.
1: Only (laughs) to find out that it didn't. And I thought maybe this is some higher power telling not to cover it. (laughs) We decided to for a lighthearted crime, and I picked wrong. Um, So I think we should take a break, um, real quick, to read you know, make sure this doesn't cut out and that we can process it, take our 15-minute break that we decided. All right. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay. I'm just going to dive into this. Dive in. Head
0: first. Do a swan dive.
1: Should I tell the dear viewers what I'm doing or should I keep it a surprise and let them figure it out on their own? They might figure it out with the first two words I say talking about, but you never know. Some people might have never heard about this.
0: I would say just start talking about it, and and, and, and we'll catch okay. up with you as you go.
1: Okay. So, without further ado, I begin my tale. Oh, I'm listening. Charles Lindbergh <laughs> was born February 4th, 1902, to Charles Lindbergh.
0: Inventive lot.
1: Uh, he was born Carl uh, Monson, but he in sweden when he was a baby uh he was a u.s congressman uh from minnesota and he was also born the person he was actually physically born to was a high school chemistry teacher named evangeline lodge land (laughs) limberg
0: alliterative name yes many Uh, l's
1: yes uh, so Lindbergh's parents separated in 1909 when he was seven years old. So he spent his childhood and adolescence bouncing back and forth between their places. And since Mr. Lindbergh, Father Lindbergh, <laughs> was a congressman, like I said, uh, he would bounce from Minnesota to Michigan to Washington, and some sources even say that he was in California for a bit. Okay. Uh, all in all, the way it's is, is when he graduated from Cass Technical High School in Detroit, which is the same school his mother was working at at the time, um, by the time he graduated, he had attended over a dozen schools. That's a lot. It is a lot. Mm. I attended three schools. I attended, no, no, I attended two schools because one was a middle and high school combined, <laughs> and then I had a different elementary school. That's the, that is the standard. Two to three schools is
0: the usual. I was gonna say if we're counting preschool, then it was four for me, but if we're not counting preschool, then it was three. Because I went to I went to kindergarten in one school and then we moved to another state and I went to elementary school and then I my high school was a separate school. I don't know if my preschool was required, but um I was being really annoying as a young child and my mom was like maybe if I put you in preschool you'll shut up (laughs) and I'll have some peace and can get stuff done and you'll stop screaming (laughs) my sister was going to school and I really was jealous of that and I wanted to go to school so I would just start crying every time she would leave for school so my mom I was like, so too. yeah, my mom was like, how young is too young for preschool? How, when can I get them out of the house?
1: <laughs> Send the kids off with a nanny. <laughs> Boarding school they're oh, up. no. <laughs> um, anyways, where was I? Um, okay. So in 1920, uh, Charles Lindbergh attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison to study engineering but dropped out his sophomore year to attend the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation's flying school in 1922. Yeah. A noble, a noble dream. Um, but th- there was a little, uh, a little hitch that he found a few months later when um, he had to leave because uh, he needed to earn money since he could not afford the damaged security bond they required for him to learn to fly solo. Uh-huh. Something you need to get a pilot's license. Yes. Um, so he spent a few months barnstorming. I'm pretty sure those are the people who do air shows and de loops and stuff.
0: They're the people that you go to air shows to watch as they crash horribly.
1: Yes, hmm. and he was a wing walker and a parachutist. The NASCAR um, and, of airplanes. Yes, and when he wasn't doing that, he was a mechanic for airplanes in Montana. Um, and that winter, he moved to Minnesota to live with his father. Uh, six months later, he successfully purchased a World War II surplus plane named Jenny. Aww. And later on that month, performed his first solo flight.
0: The plane's name was Jenny. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. Um, he did a lot
1: of, like, oh, yeah, I'll, um, I'll fly you to where you need to go, random doctor who has to go to an emergency call, that, and I'll, I'll just fly you there. So that October, he sold the Jenny and then continued to barnstorm for a few more months before enlisting in the military flight training program at the United States Army Air Service. Okay. And a year later, he graduated first in his class— In October of 1925, he was hired by the Robertson Aircraft Corporation to be an air mail pilot.
0: Nice.
1: For someone with my speech impediment, where I can't pronounce ours, that was a mouthful, so be proud of me. You
0: did very well.
1: Okay. So, let's rewind a little bit now. All right. In 1919, their first nonstop transatlantic flight took place from Newfoundland to Ireland. Um, And after this, Raymond Ortigue, who was approached by a man named August Post, neither of these men I looked up, because I don't care. (laughs) Um, So Ortigue was approached by Post, and uh, and he then put up a $25,000 reward for the person who would complete the first nonstop transatlantic flight from New York to Paris. It's
0: a long way to go. No one
1: really took this seriously until 1925, when he renewed his offer. And then, from 1925 until 1927, many tried, all failed, and some either died or disappeared in the process of trying to complete this task. <sighs> it's it was dangerous. Yeah,
0: planes didn't have roofs.
1: Yeah, and if they did, they were the like the, the the flimsy glass, and they were like little propeller putt 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 putt, putt, putt things like. No jet engines freaking existed. They were just, yeah, no, it was... You may
0: as well have been pedaling. You probably would have had a better engine quality.
1: Yeah, and not to mention, one of the the biggest risks that happened is you had to carry all the fuel.
0: That's dangerous.
1: So sometimes sometimes there were explosions, and not only that, but if... um, if the, the fuel wasn't like a super super fine quality, like strained multiple multiple times, you would get you would get blockages in the in the fuel system, and then they would just run out of fuel and crash. Oh no! Like it was it was bad. Um, so no one succeeded. Some people disappeared. Multiple people died. Um, enter Charles Augustus Lindbergh. Yeah. Uh, well, he secured a fifteen thousand dollar bank loan. And saved up uh, $2,000. Then his employer, uh, the RAC, also put an additional $1,000 up for him to attempt the trip. Um, So he had $18,000, right? Okay. Is your cat in the background?
0: Uh, Both of them are, and one of them just smacked
1: the other one in the face. Okay, I'm hearing jingling. I'm guessing that's your
0: cat's. that Yep, she just ran by and she is not pleased because she just got smacked in the face. Sir, that's rude. Don't look so smug. You just punched your sister in the face. That's not nice. <sighs> rude.
1: So he had $18,000.
0: That's a lot of money. Nowhere,
1: but it was nowhere near as much as the other people who were dying... Attempting the trip had saved up for the trip. Because you got to realize. He had sold his plane. Oh he right. To buy the plane. He needed to come up with enough. Um, the, the first transatlantic flight. Was like 34 hours. Like 34-35 hours. So he needed to come up with at least. A day and a half's worth of. Um, of. Fuel and rations. The plane that he had. Had to be able to withstand a decent amount of um, altitude, pressure, temperatures that no one knew what they were going to be like, as well as the weight of having all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, So after, you know, searching and talking to different um, companies, he was able to strike a deal with the Ryan Aircraft Company, who designed him a plane, christened it the Spirit of St. Louis, and then charged him only $10,580 leaving him just under $7,000 to get all the rations and fuel and all the other stuff he needed. Um, so May 20th, 1927, with – I didn't write it down. He had an ungodly amount of fuel that they strained like 20 times. Oh. Not really 20, That's an exaggeration. They strained it so many times that there would be no blockages. He didn't have to worry about that. They piled all that on, all his rations, and on May 20th, 1927 – Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field in New York and landed at La Bourgette Aerodrome in Paris 33 and a half hours later, successful. Nice. The first nonstop transatlantic flight from New York City to Paris was a success. And this rose him to world renowned superstar level. He was world famous. He won Times uh, Magazine's Man of the Year in 1928. They held a ticker day parade for him. Uh, he got like two million congratulatory telegrams (laughs) within like he was he was a he was like the Brad Pitt no Brad is Brad Pitt still relevant I'm old I I don't watch uh, he's like he
0: he was was like like the Robert Downey Jr.
1: I was about okay
0: he was the Tony Stark
1: you're going to laugh at me What? Uh I was going to say he's like the um the Leonardo DiCaprio of the Okay. 20s, but then I remembered that um I actually I don't know if that's a good example cuz I don't know if No, I actually know somebody. I met somebody um from uh was he from Hungary and his idol was Leonardo DiCaprio and I couldn't have a single conversation with him <laughs> without him bringing it back to Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> If 1928 me had been talking to a nineteen twenty this guy from Hungary, he would have been talking about his hero, Charles Augustus Lindy. Lucky Lindy. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it didn't go to his head one bit.
1: No, not at all. Um, so this brought him fame, fortune, and connections. So, that being said... Let's talk about a woman now. This woman eventually became an accomplished poet, writer, uh, well off. Like j- day one, the moment she was born, she was going places. This woman's name is Anne Spencer Morrow, of the New Jersey Morrow's. <laughs> uh, Anne was born June twenty second, nineteen oh six, to Dwight, Morrow, who you might know as At the time, he was the partner of J.P. Morgan & Company.
0: I know that name.
1: Yes, and Elizabeth Morrow, who was a poet, teacher, activist, and socialite. Elizabeth would read to Anne and her three siblings for at least an hour every night, and both parents encouraged Anne to rapidly learn to read and write, until she could be the one to read herself, um, or read to herself every night. (laughs) Uh, she also honed her writing via poetry and diaries. Like she was born with every opportunity. She graduated the Chapin School in New York City in 1924. While at high school, she was um, president of the student body. She did took part, part. She took part in extracurricular activity. She was an educated woman in the 20s.
0: Okay, that's pretty impressive. Uh,
1: Her senior year at Smith College, uh, her father had brought the family to Mexico and invited um, a world-famous American hero named Charles Lindbergh to help advance good U.S.-Mexican relations. Um, Obviously, the two met, given the fact that it was her father that invited him there in the first place. The two fell in love, and that May were married at a private ceremony at her parents' residence in Inglewood, New Jersey.
0: I know where that is.
1: Yep. yep. Um, so that year, Anne flew her first solo flight. Oh,
0: good for her. That's awesome.
1: Um, Anne became the first American woman to earn a first-class glider pilot's license.
0: She's awesome.
1: Yes. Uh, The Lindberghs flew all over the world together, chartering new routes, and were the first people to fly from Africa to South America. Wow. Yeah. Uh, The happy couple seemed to have it all, the perfect life, the perfect marriage, successful careers, uh, and soon to be the perfect family as on Anne's 24th birthday, June 22nd, 1930, (laughs) They welcomed their first child, Charles Jr., into the world. So, are you ready for this to get as intense as a Girl Scout camping trip? Yes. Okay. So, the Lindberghs were big ticket items, all right? Yep. Right. And they were were like, oh, we must have a full estate office away from the big cities where we can get away from the spotlight. And not only is it going to be any estate, it's going to be an estate with a name. <laughs> and they named their estate Highfields. And they started construction of Highfields in 1931. And it was a sprawling 30-something acre estate.
0: That's too many acres.
1: Um, they had that many acres regardless. <laughs> And even though it was still kind of being constructed, um, some sources only stayed there on the weekends. Some said that they were actually living there and just had the construction was being worked around them. I've even seen sources that say that the place was fully built, which in a year, a sprawling estate, doubtful, but whatever. <laughs> the is, staying there on the night of March 1st, 1932, which brings us to our story.
0: Dun, dun, dun.
1: March 1st, 1932, at around 9 p.m., the Lindbergh's family nurse, their personal family nurse, named Betty Gal, (laughs) put baby Charles in his crib.
0: That's a funny name.
1: You know, it's a very nursing name. It
0: really is.
1: Betty Gal. (laughs) Um, So, at around... Okay, there's nothing in the the next paragraph that doesn't reek of their rich... So their private family nurse put Charles in his nursery at Highfields Estate at 9 p.m. At around 9.30 p.m., Charles, who was in his personal library located just underneath the nursery, said that he heard what appeared to be slats in the kitchen. Wait, so
0: his library, which is where you want to go when you want it to be quiet, is under the nursery. Where the screaming baby will be. Yes. That makes no sense. That's poor planning on their part. That's just poor house design.
1: Well, he was in the library when he heard what sounded like slats breaking in the kitchen. Um, At 10 o'clock, Gao returned to the nursery to check up on baby Charles, only discover he was not there. So the first thing she did was she went okay don't panic maybe the baby's with his mother maybe maybe anne took the baby so she went to go find anne only to find anne just in the bathtub and there was no baby to be seen when she realized that anne did not have the baby she informed charles not baby charles because he's missing and 20 months old, so why would you alert a 20-month-old to a kidnapping? So we're just going to call him Lindbergh. There's baby Charles and there's Lindbergh. She informed Lindbergh, who went to the child's room and found an envelope containing a ransom note on the windowsill. And, oh cool boy, let me tell you.
0: Is I it poorly saw... spelled?
1: Oh. It could not have been worse if my five-year-old step daughter wrote it.
0: Oh, that's unfortunate.
1: I'm talking bad grammar, terrible spelling. Like, the margins are just what margins. It's, it's bad. Um, I will post a picture of it to the Instagram, and right now I'm going to quickly find it and send you a picture via messenger, okay? Okay. It's a hot mess. Um, okay. So, did you okay, I just sent it to you. I need you to just see what I mean.
0: That's like four different styles of
1: handwriting. Yes. What good ransoms have, it says if you go, you know, do not notify the police or harm will come to your child, and then it asks for money. It asks for $50,000. Half of it in 20s. What is it, like ten? Thousand of it, in, no, fifteen thousand of it in tens and ten thousand of it in fives.
0: Sounds legit, sounds legit.
1: And then said that they'd be in touch. And okay. at this point, Charles grabbed his gun and his butler. His butler, he has a butler, and his butler's name was Ollie Waitley which is the most butler name to ever butler since Alfred Pennyworth. Oh my gosh. So he grabbed his gun and his butler and searched the house and the grounds. Underneath the nursery window, they found impressions in the ground where it was soft, as well as what appeared to be pieces of a broken janky makeshift ladder that very clearly snapped in half at some point during this process.
0: Wasn't uh, it was it held together with twine?
1: It was a three-part collapsible ladder. Oh. Um, that was homemade. It, anyway, it was a bad so they, time. It was a bad time. Bad news bears. Um, and then they found baby Charles's blanket. Aww. So Waitley telephoned the Hopewell Town Police, and then Charles, after contacting his attorney henry skillman breckenridge
0: that's a very attorney sounding name
1: it is it's also very fake sound i read that it was like hmm that seems fake but okay (laughs) it's just it's sure jan
0: Jan, yeah um and then
1: after contacting his attorney he contacted the new jersey state police okay okay listen
0: i'm I'm listening (laughs) okay
1: This investigation reminds me of that John (laughs) sketch. What was a murder investigation like in 1935?
0: (laughs) We'll draw a chalk outline of where the body is. That way we'll know where it was.
1: (laughs) This is the first thing. Countless people told the police that they touched everything, (laughs) including the pieces of the ladder, including the crib, including the (laughs) windowsill. Um, but still, despite everyone's
0: oh, grubby no. hands being,
1: despite everyone's grubby hands being on everything, the police said that there were no fingerprints. Shut up. No, and despite everyone trampling around the ground, police also said that there were no footprints.
0: I don't want to say that they're bad at their jobs, but
1: detective, we found a pool of the, the killer's blood in the hallway. Gross. Mop it up! <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, this is not helped with the fact that there were two police forces working at once. well oh. was a slew of private investigators hired by Breckenridge. Too many cooks is my thought. Uh. But, that's not all.
0: But wait, there's more!
1: <laughs> because this was the kidnapping of the child of a famous family, hundreds of people gathered on the estate Destroying any evidence that could have been used. That... (sighs) There is more. The military offered to help. So, you know, the military got in the way of the police investigating. The Bureau of Investigation, which would later in the future be named the Federal Bureau of Investigation, came swooping in, so did the Coast Guard, immigration the washington dc police it was a train wreck where
0: in new jersey are
1: they um between hopewell and east amwell
0: i'm trying to think if that's near enough to the coast for the coast guard to be like we can help
1: I'm pretty sure the Coast Guard should only get involved if, like, the baby was kidnapped and you saw somebody get in a boat and take the baby. No,
0: yeah, that's, like, on the other side of the state, away from the coast. Yeah. Coast Guard's not going to (laughs) help.
1: It was a train wreck. And to add on top of it, the fact that all of these departments, as well as the Lindberghs, were being assaulted with a ton of false information... Misinformed clues and unhelpful tips. It was train wreck. I can't repeat that enough. (laughs) Okay, so five days later, five days of this train wreck, and the coast. uh, The Lindberghs received. What is that?
0: Oh, that's the ice in my water glass. Sorry. Okay. Um, Shall I jingle it near the microphone more? I'm thirsty. <laughs> oh,
1: God. Um, so, March 6th, five days of this train wreck, um, the Lindberghs received a second correspondence from the kidnappers post-March March 4th in Brooklyn. The letter raised the ransom to $70,000. Two days later, another <sighs> correspondence was received, this time by Breckenridge, stating that no intermediaries suggested by the Lindberghs would be used that same day in Brooklyn, dr. John F. Condon, a art school principal, and one um one source put and I quote a Brooklyn personality <laughs> uh, i honestly want to know what the heck a Brooklyn personality is i <sighs> Uh when I think of personality because we're in the twenty first century, I think like a TV personality. I think like B H one personality, New York Yeah. Like, like um uh people on real Real Housewives. <laughs> whatever. Like or Ryan Seacrest. That's what I think of as a personality. What was a personality in ni- a Brooklyn personality? What would that mean in nineteen
0: thirty two? Uh half the cast of the Jersey Shore? <laughs>
1: Oh, maybe. Most of
0: them know. were from New York. <laughs> I'm saying, like, one of them was from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch enough I, of it to know which one.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, um... So, Dr. John F. Condon, Tired School Principal, Brooklyn Personality, posted in the classified section of the Bronx Home News that he... And that the, This is some... P- I don't know. Okay. Um... He classified in the Bronx Home News that he wanted to be the intermediary. On March 9th, a fourth note was received approving
0: this. Oh, so the kidnappers say, you can't have an intermediary. Some rando guy goes, I'll be the intermediary. And the kidnappers go, we changed our mind. That's fine.
1: And then the Lindberghs were like, sure, why not? This stranger... This stranger will. The stranger
0: can't possibly also be in on it.
1: (sighs) That's I'm not getting into any of the conspiracy theories. Um. So, on March 9th, Condon was given seventy thousand dollars and began new and began a negotiation via the newspaper.
0: Because that's how you want to correspond.
1: If you like peanut (laughs) butter and kidnapping kids. (laughs)
0: Like I just think of the classified ads. That's like OG Tinder right there. Like yeah. man seeking woman. I'm lonely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> song. Yeah. Um So this is when it becomes a true like okay, if this was up to this was just an Amtrak derailment
0: Outside Philadelphia, about- like it always does. <laughs>
1: Yes. <laughs> what I am <laughs> between <laughs> Philadelphia and New York, like it every Valley. time. A classic northwestern Pacific Amtrak derailment. Yes, this is a full-on two trains on the same track going the opposite direction towards each other, head-on collision, then fault, and they just derail up. Are you ready? You ready? I'm ready. All right. <sighs> March 12th, 8.30 p.m., Condon receives a note delivered by a taxi cab driver who received it from an unidentified stranger. The message stated another note would be found 100 feet from a subway station under a rock by a vacant stand. There, he did indeed find another note. This note had instructions, and upon following them, he met with a man who identified himself as John at Woodlawn Cemetery at 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue. They discussed the ransom amount, how Condon needed proof of life, and then departed. March 16th, a baby's pajamas and another note found by Dr. Condon, or received by Dr. Condon. The pajamas were given to Lindbergh, who identified them as belonging to baby Charles. (laughs) That's not proof of life. That's proof of clothes. On March 21st, Condon received another note which explained that the kidnapping has been planned for an entire year. (laughs) March 30th, Condon received a note threatening to raise the ransom to $100,000 if he didn't comply. Um, April 1st, Dr. Condon received another note which told him to have the money ready. April second, an unidentified taxi driver gave Condon another note claiming a stranger gave it to him. This note gave him instructions and upon following them he found the next note under a stone in front of a greenhouse at two hundred sorry, three hundred three thousand two hundred and twenty fifth East <laughs> Avenue in the Bronx.
0: Okay. I know you don't Con- want to get into the conspiracy theories. <laughs> but none of those taxi drivers were taxi drivers.
1: I don't know. Condon followed the instructions on that note, which had him meet again with John that evening. Condon gave John $50,000. John gave him a receipt for the transaction, and a final 13th correspondence since the baby was kidnapped. This note said that baby Charles could be found on a boat named Nellie off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. The police searched Martha's Vineyard and the surrounding areas twice, and out in the ocean twice, and each time came up with bupkis. Nothing. Nada. Z- zelch. No baby, no boat named Nelly. Okay. I'm angry. <laughs> You're about to get even more angry. Because we're now going to fast forward. A month and ten days later, something like that. Okay. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. May May 12, 1932, William Allen stumbled upon the decomposing corpse of a young child less than five miles from the Highfield estate. The body was positively identified as that of baby Charles (sighs) when it was determined that, based on the hole in the skull, he died of a blow to the head. It was further determined that the level of decomposition was that of a baby who had been dead about two months. Therefore, he probably died the night he was kidnapped. And also, even though there is evidence that the hole in the skull was caused post-mortem by a clumsy investigator, we can never know as the next day, May 13th, the baby Charles was cremated. What was a murder investigation like in 1935?
0: I mean, I mean, I, I get it. Like, it, it's a well-off family. They have the means to be like, look, we just want our kid back and want to be able to mourn properly. Let's let's wrap this up. But.
1: So I don't know if the family being well-off had anything to do with it because. Well, I
0: mean, like, it's just something that would make sense like there's this hell big case everything's happening so much they finally find the baby they're like oh, okay we found it and we're gonna now we're gonna investigate and they're probably like can we just have our baby back and be able to bury him and mourn and you
1: see yeah. my thought was what was a murder investigation <laughs> like in 1932 <1932? laughs> Detective! We found the baby decomposing five miles from the estate! Hmm, gross! Cremating!
0: <laughs> when also doubt, possible.
1: When in doubt, use John Mulaney to break <laughs> Now No, we
0: don't have time to unpack all of that.
1: Yeah. Okay, so the police and other the rest, the other slews of investigators. <laughs> the
0: rest of the, the cast.
1: Yes, police et al. had no leads. There were no leads. This is when the Bureau took over as an auxiliary force and had an actually good idea to put a track out for all the money.
0: What okay? They didn't huh? do they didn't do that like immediately?
1: I could not find sources that mentioned this before the baby was found dead. So No,
0: I mean, I don't doubt that they waited this long to do it. I'm just saying, what took them so long?
1: If you know if the Bureau put a track out on the ransom money prior to the baby Charlie being found dead, please email us at trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail.com. Answer the question for us, because I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, the tracking was relatively easy, as the Depre- the Great Depression saw uh, a presidential order to have gold certificates, which were used as tender, be phased out. And 40000 of the $50,000 from the ransom was paid in gold certificates. Unfortunately, with the exception of a few small purchases throughout the city, uh, there were no solid leads until September 18, 1934. On September 18, 1934, a bank teller called to report finding one of the ransom bills with a license plate number written on the margin. The bill was traced to a nearby gas station where the manager said he wrote down the plate of the man who used it to buy gas. Uh, I've heard three different sources on why this man wrote down the license plate number. One source says the guy overpaid, and the manager wrote it down in case he came back for his change.
0: Okay, makes sense.
1: Another said that he wrote it down because the dude was sketchy and he didn't know if it was counterfeit money.
0: Also makes sense.
1: And the other one was because the dude was, um, the dude paid him with a type of, Tender that was being phased out, and he wrote it down in case the bank wouldn't accept it, so he could contact the guy and get twenty dollars of actual, you know, legal yeah. money. Yeah. All po-
0: very plausible. Those all make sense.
1: Yes. Um, license plate belonged to a man named Bruno Richard Hotman. Now Hotman was a German immigrant with a criminal record. In Germany. Okay. And was immediately arrested. Oh. No, but a baby was dead. So, um, that's what they did in 1932. Baby's dead. Or, in this case, 34. Baby's dead. Must punch people. <laughs> you know, is what, how they thought. It was, but it was the time. Um, he kept denying that it was him. Meanwhile, the police did a search of his home and found over $14,000 of the ransom money. Ooh. A notebook containing a rough, like, blueprint sketch of the ladder used to kidnap baby Charles. Dr. Condon's telephone number and address written in a closet on the wall. Bro. And a section of wood that experts agreed was an exact match for the wood used in the construction of the ladder. So they found a plank of wood in his attic that... um like forensic botanists were like this if you look at the growth pattern of the wood, if you look at the grain, if you look at the color, if you look at the type of wood, all this other stuff looking under a microscope this these this plank of wood and this piece of ladder came from the same piece of wood
0: Yay, forensic science
1: okay Hopman was still denying culpability though he insisted that the money was given to him by an old colleague named Isidore Fish. He said that. Isidore Fish gave him a box, like a shoe box, and said, hey, take care of this box for me. I'm going to go leave. And then, um, you know, he just left it there. Uh, and this story could not be corroborated as Fish had died earlier that year. However, Hopman stated that Fish gave him the box, um, and it wasn't until he died that he decided to open the box. And that's when Hopman realized there was money in it. And then, according to Hopman, he thought, well... Fish owes me a debt, so I'm going to keep the money because he owes me money. And that was Hopman's story, and he was sticking to it. Um, but regardless of his denials, he was indicted by New York on September 24th, 1934, for extortion of money. Because all they could get him for was the evidence that he extorted uh, money from the, the Lindberghs, that he took the ransom. Okay. But on October 8th, he was indicted by New Jersey for the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. And then they extradited him to Fleming, New Jersey, to a...
0: That's such a New Jersey thing, though. It's like, well, we don't really have the evidence to charge him with the murder. New Jersey's like, we'll charge him with the murder. We
1: don't care. (laughs) Well, the murder had to be done by New Jersey because the murder took place in New Jersey. He was kidnapped in New Jersey. He was found dead in New Jersey. Um, the extortion happened in New York because the ransom correspondences, uh, were all postmarked from New York. Um, all the, the things were done by Dr. Condon. All the messages started being sent to him, which were all in New York. Um, and the money was, was exchanged in New York and Hoffman lived in New York. So they got him for extortion. The murder could not be tried in New York. It had to be tried in New Jersey. New Jersey was just like, "Fuck it, <laughs> give me all the evidence. I'll take it. It's a very New Jersey thing. Yes. So there was a lot used in the trial. The trial was considered the crime of the century. And this was another, it wasn't a train wreck. It was just a headache. Yeah. So the ransom money that was found in his place, the sketchbook, a photograph of Condon's numbers and address sketched on the wall of the closet and a bunch of handwriting experts comparing some of Hopman's writing to the ransom note were all used. It, the defense tried using um, Hopman and his wife to try to, you know, cr- corroborate the story that this um, money came from fish. But upon cross examination, the prosecution, while talking to Hopman's wife, uh, realized that uh, she had never seen the box. She was saying she did because her husband was telling her he was there, but she never actually saw the box. And where, he said that he kept it, where he said that he kept it on the same, like, shelf rack where she hung her apron every day, and she never remember seeing it. Oh, okay. And, and then the nail in the coffin of his trial was Arthur Kohler and the Forest Productions Laboratory whose work proved that the word plank found in Hotman's attic was undeniably a match to that used in the lab. Yeah! One, I don't know if it was the first, but it was one of the first cases of forensic botany being used to seal a, like, to be used in court to prove or anything, to be proved guilt or innocence. It was the first time forensic botany was used in the courtroom. Nice. So, despite the fact he, to the end, denied that he had anything to do with the murder, obviously the facts were stacked up against Hopman. And he was convicted of capital murder and then immediately sentenced to death. Mm. Um, he tried appealing, and the appeal got denied. And then he went to appeal again, and at that point, Jersey Governor Harold G. Hoffman was considering commuting his sentence. But upon the fact that Hoffman was refusing to confess, and the board denied his final appeal, uh, Hoffman was like, mm, actually, best not. Wow. So, pretty much, you're allowed to appeals, I guess, or were. I'm really quite sure of the facts of that. Um, but it just he lost his chance but then as his execution drew near uh, hearst I believe they were still just a newspaper at that time they offered him a great sum for a confession which was supplemented by the fact that the state was again offering to commute his sentence last minute if he confessed right and so despite being offered money and freedom or at least money and not death he still went, nope, I had nothing to do with it. Hmm. So on April nineteen thirty six, he was electrocuted.
0: That's unpleasant.
1: It is. And the thing that frustrates me the most about this is okay. There had to have been someone holding that ladder. Right. Like it is a janky ladder. We talked about this janky ladder. It is it's a mess. There's no way and especially since there's evidence that the ladder broke someone would have had to be there to help
0: right i mean even with a good ladder i refuse to stop it unless there's at least one person spotting me so if it's a ladder that's made of like dental floss and toothpicks i personally am not getting on it. um but... not
1: only that but they, they ha- he had just a little fast <laughs> and <laughs> He had a little bit less than a third of the ransom money.
0: Huh.
1: Which says that there might have been one or two accomplices.
0: That money's in somebody's, like, grandparents' attic.
1: Yeah. (laughs) If you have um, found a bunch of ransom money in your grandparents' attic, email us at trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail.com. We'd like to know if you're Grandparents were responsible for the Lindbergh kidnapping. <laughs> unless somebody finds the remaining ransom money in their grandparents' attic, we will never know because he, since he refused to confess, that also means he did not name any of his accomplices. Huh? guess these uh, the Knoll brothers. I don't remember what one of his name. The other one was John Knoll. Um, that they were two accomplices. Other people say that one of the Lindbergh himself, but that gets way right out there in the I'm conspiracy not- land. We're not, we're not touching conspiracy land. Aww. That can be if we ever like open up a Patreon and we can make that as a supplement podcast. But I'm not touching that in, in, right now. That's too much. There's <laughs> so many. It's too many. And they're all they get crazier and crazier the more you go down. Conspiracy
0: like theory, most conspiracy theories,
1: conspiracy theory that I will even give credence to isn't even a conspiracy theory. It's more of a, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, a there's there's the chance that one of the people, the investigators' postmortem when they went to go handle the baby's remains, freaking accidentally poked a hole in the skull, uh. in skull he was like oh there's a hole in the skull this, this baby was laid down on the ground and a, and some sharp or a you know, long object was used to like, bash their head in when in reality there's a crack on the other side which could be conducive to the baby falling instead so there's a theory that the baby was never meant to be killed and that he fell when the ladder broke out of the ladder when they were trying to kidnap him out of the window. And therefore it shouldn't have been murder. It should have been like manslaughter. Right. But that is the, that's the, the, the most, the tamest of the conspiracy theories. Yeah. There's all like Lindbergh accidentally did it, he intentionally did it, he hired people to do it, he hired people to kidnap, and it went wrong. And there's just like there's people saying the government was involved. I'm just, I'm not even there's a whole website called Lindbergh If you ever want to just look, um, it's just but that's not what that's, I'm not, I ain't about that life. Yes,
0: that's a rabbit hole. We definitely don't need to go down right now,
1: not now, not on episode two, <laughs> anyways. So that's the story of the Lindbergh kidnapping.
0: That was intense.
1: Like I said, as intense as a Girl Scout camping trip.
0: <laughs> Puns.
1: Should we tell people where they can find us? Coming?
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have a Twitter at uh, tfabmonsterpod, and we have tweets. I've been tweeting. We have some followers makes me happy we have a few
1: followers yay you can also find us on Instagram where we have posts and followers too um, yeah. and that is at truly fabulously monstrous which is also the name of our email if you have any questions comments concerns critiques nice critiques though because we are fragile and we will cry about episodes codes want to tell us about the ransom money you found and you're at it. Uh, please don't hesitate to email us at trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail dot com,
0: and we will read them.
1: And we will read them, and we will enjoy them. It'll be the minute we start getting emails will be the minute my days have been made, my life made. The heavens will open up and angels will sing. I'll be that happy. <laughs> All right, I think this wraps up this
0: episode. Yeah, I think that that. Uh... Wraps it up nicely. Yes,
1: although I'm a little depressed.
0: It's. I mean, it's not a fun story.
1: (laughs) I feel like it was a bummer.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, Um, on
1: that note, we will. We hope to see you at the next episode,
0: which will be a cryptid episode. Are you? Yep, and we will be there, and we hope you will too. Bye. Bye.